Namahi nui ki koutou katoa. Welcome to this podcast series celebrating our Auckland Library's rare books and manuscripts collection. This track was recorded in 2019 as part of a meta rare book series of talks delivered by rare book specialist Georgia Prince. In this session, we get up close with the 15th century French manuscript, The Consolation of Philosophy by Bometheus, followed by a discussion of some fragments of very early medieval manuscripts found as part of the binding of a Bible printed in 1480. I thought we'd look at, go back and look at a couple of medieval manuscripts that don't normally, um, well, we aren't as commonly shown. Um, so I'm going to start with um, this one is what we're going to look at and it's a manuscript a French translation of a Latin work from late antiquity by a scholar called Boethius thank you yes it's the consolation of philosophy (laughs) Um, and this one um, is a an anonymous French translation, um, which has had a little bit of work done on it by um, a New Zealand scholar called Glynis Crop, um, who yeah, is a, was a sort of medieval French specialist and so did a lot of work in the, I don't know, 80s, 90s on it. It's not as beautiful and glamorous um, as the Missal or the Book of Hours, but it is fascinating because it's different and it's nice to see the range of medieval manuscripts that we've got in the collection because they're not all... You know, they they look different. They've got different scripts. They're written in different languages. Um, they're not all versions of the Bible or theological texts. You know, they're they're, they're a variety of different things. And this one is from <clears throat> late antiquity. It was written, sort of round about 520, and they don't really know the exact date, and written while this man Boethius was in prison. So he was a Roman. Uh, in a sense, a classical Italian Roman from a senatorial family. Um, and this was the point at which the Roman Empire the, in the West was being invaded by different tribal groups, um, the Ostrogoths and so on. And the king at the time, <clears throat> who was um, an Ostrogoth, um, employed him in a, in a job and then accused him of, of, tre- of um, treason. So he was imprisoned, and while he was in prison, he wrote this, which is the Consolation of Philosophy. Um, It was, he was a Christian, but this is not, this is not an overtly Christian book in the sense that it's not full of um, biblical references or any references to Christ at all. It talks about God, but not about anything um, more personalised. But it is really a, a text that embodies, in a sense, the last uh, of the ancient Roman classical education. So he uses a lot of references to Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers. And while he comes to terms with what he envisages as his own death, because, and in fact, that's what happened. Um, almost, you know, within a year or so, he, he was executed. Um, so, but it was an incredibly popular book in the Middle Ages, and that's why this is written in, well, this manuscript is made at the beginning of the 15th century, so somewhere 1420, 1430 type of time, made in Paris in a French translation. It was translated into numerous vernacular languages, so it wasn't just a Latin treatise that people, um, only a few knew, they actually did translate it because it had more appeal. <clears throat> and it was translated into English, 
by Chaucer, no less. Not that we got a, co a copy of that, but it was. So, you know, it had quite wide circulation. Not so wide now, of course, but that's interesting. So, at the beginning, we have a medieval signature. So, this this book is, is Gray's book. Um, so, this has come from Gray's collection. And he bought it probably in, 18, in 1863 from one of the Boone catalogues, which is where he bought a number of um, medieval manuscripts. So he bought it in 1863 after he'd come back to New Zealand. Um, so this says Sebastian de Cambrai, but I don't really know who he was, but that's, you know, he was in northern France and it's contemporary with the manuscript because of the style of the writing. So it's, you know, it's often the writing styles that are the things that... Um, identify time um, and place in medieval manuscripts because they're not dated. We've got vellum here um, and and um, all these lovely little gilt initials and and this the, the writing style is a different writing style from what we've looked at before which were those gothic scripts. This is a cursive um, so it's it's on a slope and it's for writing quickly <laughs> and it's a more informal script but it's still a beautiful script um, from the early 15th century. Um, they call it Lettre Batale in um, French but um, which basically means bastarda which is like illegitimate um, <laughs> script but it just means it's the less formal um, script. Um, so where have we got here? Binding. The binding is 17th century. It's vellum, but it's 17th century. And the reason why I can sound so absolutely categorical about this is that these were all examined by Christopher de Hamel, <laughs> whose book I was just going to mention. At the front, which I haven't, didn't open there because we opened at the beginning of the text, but this is, the, these are the, um, you know, the end papers at the beginning. This is Gray's handwriting at the front here. This is, and this is him trying to identify who this um, book plate belonged to. He did actually get it wrong, so it's not the one he said it is. Um, this belonged to uh, a woman, interestingly, who was a, a d the Duchess of Berry in early 19th century. Um, she was one of the Bourbons. Um, but she had a, um, a bankruptcy sale, apparently, in 1837. And this one, again, I'm quoting Christopher Hamill, which is why I know this, um, because he identified this manuscript as one that is named in the catalogue of the sale. Um, 1837. Don't know where it was between 1837 and 1863 when Gray brought it off Boone, but there is quite a lot of talk about French manuscripts and how they came onto the market in the 19th century, and it's particularly because of political um, unrest. The French Revolution at the late, in the late 18th century then the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century, and then a series of coups <laughs> that happened throughout the um, the early 19th century. Well, in fact, you know, right through to Napoleon the second or third, the emperor, um, Napoleon's nephew. Um, so all that um, disrupted aristocratic collecting and libraries. So the aristocrats who had, you know, presume, had the um, advantage of having all this wealth and so on um, were now in a much more parlous state and so sold off lots of their libraries. And this is how a lot of the French manuscripts come onto the market. And this is, this is the manuscript. And the, as you can see, there's quite a lot of red ink in this manuscript. And the ink here is a very browny colour. 
and that is oak gall ink and I'll just read out to you what Christopher Hamill just says about this is this great book called Making, Manus Med Making Medieval Manuscripts fascinating read for, even though it sounds so technical it's highly entertaining so when he talks about the ink he's got a picture of an oak gall and they're made by a wasp <laughs> and that's that's where they. This is where this ink is made, comes from. Um, so, um, the principal ingredient is the oak apple, um, and it grows mainly on the leaves and twigs of oak trees. It's formed when a gall wasp lays its egg in the growing bud of the tree, and a soft, pale green apple-like sphere begins to form around the larva. Um, so. If picked too young, gall nuts shrivel up like rotten fruit, but when the larva inside is fully developed into an insect, it bores a hole out of its vegetable cocoon and it flies away and the hard nut which remains is rich in tannic and gallic acids. And the galls are rushly crushed up and infused <coughs> for some days in rainwater in the sun or by fire. And so on. This is these recipes for how you make ink. But this is the principal ingredient of the ink that you can see here on the page. And then this red ink, which appears quite commonly all the way through the manuscript, um, is vermilion. Um, and that is quite a, quite a common um, appearance of medieval manuscripts with the, with, the, with the use of red ink as a heading, you know, as an um, identifier of a change from one chapter to another. And now I'm going to open on the only miniature in the in, the, in this um, which is on this page and this is a painting of an author or a translator and we don't know which but it might be the translator given this is a French translation of Boethius dictating to a scribe and this is the scribe who's sitting down here in the corner <laughs> he's so cute <laughs> um, and miniatures are always the last thing that are added to, to medieval manuscripts. This is the only one in the book. It's unusual because often in Boethius, um, manuscripts of Boethius, they often have Boethius in philosophy, who's person personified as a woman. And that's the usual iconography in books like this, to have a picture of the author or translator and the scribe. Is, a, is quite an unusual um, choice of subject for this manuscript. But there are lots of pictures of, of medieval scribes in medieval books. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the, your clues about how they actually wrote and what they used to write with. And, the, you know, the, and their sort of writing desks and their mechanisms. And this is where this book is so interesting because Christopher de Hamel goes through different practical... Um, almost experiments of how to write with the implements and what that meant when you're looking at an image like this. So here the scribe will have a quill and a knife and I think, I'm not sure if you can see, you can definitely see the quill there, but they have two implements. I think there's only, you can only see the quill on that picture. Mm. You have to look at it quite hard. But the quill, as you can see in this, is not one with a great big feather sticking off the end with lots of, you know, waffly, feathery bits. It's just a tube, a hollow tube, um, and that's what, um, is what they make out of goose quills. Um, and it's quite, again, um, de Hamel talks quite a lot about it. Um, so, <clears throat> for a right-handed scribe, a quill which fits most comfortably into the hand has a slight natural curve to the right. This then comes from the left wing of the bird. 
First of all, the thin end and most of the barbs would be trimmed or peeled away, and most medieval pictures of scribes show simply the curved white barrel, which is what you can see there. Feathers freshly removed from the bird or found on the beach are too flexible and need hardening, so don't try and practice with one you just get. <laughs> they can either be left to dry out for some months or can be hardened artificially by soaking them in water and then plunging them for a few minutes into a tray of heated sand. There you go. <laughs> the thin, greasy outer skin and pith within the barrel can be scraped or rubbed away easily now. That what remains is a tough, almost transparent tube. The tip is pared away on each flank. This is why they need a knife um, to make the point. Um, and so, with a short and sharp knife, a pen knife, which is where you get the term from, um, usually in a double step, very much into the shape of a fountain pen nib. Then it is cushioned in the hand, rather like the action of peeling a potato and a slit is cut up the centre of the nib. Yes, you have to do those things when you're doing it. <laughs> um, finally, the pen is laid with its nib against a firm surface, and the scribe pushes down with the blade of his knife across the extreme end, removing a fraction of a millimetre to produce an absolutely clean, crisp, squared-off tip. So, um, and then he explains that you have to do this a lot, which mm. is why they have the knife um, in their other hand. Partly that's to hold down the vellum as they're writing it, keeping it the surface flat, because vellum is quite springy. Um, but it is because <clears throat> they um, would sharpen their queen pens. So Thomas, what is this? John of Tilbury, one of the scholars in the household of Thomas Beckett in the 12th century, describes how a clerk taking dictation would need to sharpen his pen so often that he had to have 60 or 100 quills ready cut and sharpened in advance. The implication is that in the course of a day's work, a busy scribe would sharpen his pen 60 times. So it's quite, you know, there's quite an interesting um, description of the technical um, activity that's involved in something like this. What you can often, and as he says, when you look at pictures of, of medieval scribes, that's often how you can identify what they're doing. In this case, he's sitting with the, with the vellum on his knee, which doesn't seem a very convenient way of writing, and I don't think that's the correct term, way of doing it at all. So that's, that's our scribe, and that's our, that's our miniature, but that's also our um, biggest initial, and that's you know, that common way in which the first page, the you know, most important page, the beginning of the book, and has the biggest initial, um, and then others are uh, um, sort of graded, if you like, in importance through the rest of the book. You can also see that this is ruled up. Um, you can see the ruled, the ruled lines on this one. So in, some, in some manuscripts, you can't see them. They're scored. But in this one, there's a faint um, sort of plummet line. It's, you know, it's, the, it's not inked, it's, it, but it is lined up. And all you can see the grid on here, all the lines gridded up. And it's in one column, which is also interesting. And then into here, we start to see some of the commentary. So this is both the text and um, some explanations in the margins, which is not the work of the scribe. This is something that is, um, has authority, you know, from other sources. So it's a proper gloss, which is what they used to use, the term. And then I'll okay, turn the page here. You can see, oh, I know why I, I had kept some of these pages, to show you some of the parchment, because this is actually quite rough parchment in places. And you can see how <coughs> the skin has been stretched, where you can see how 
there's a hole mm -hmm. and also there's some stitching here we go on this page you can see how that hole has been stitched up and this had to be done at the time when you were actually stretching the parchment and making it um, taut because if you um, you know if you left it you, you would never be able to pull it together again because it's got to it's got to dry um, and get stretched on its frame yeah oh, and here's a hole too isn't it yeah there is a little hole this there one right there's one there too mm. <coughs> so that's our Boethius um, and yeah it's it's really quite a lovely thing um, but that is the only miniature it's made in Paris French and early 15th century and now I'm going to show you um, the discovery, um, some of you will have seen these, um, but this, these are the fragments that were discovered in 2012 um, in our in a printed Bible from 1480. So this, this is a very early printed work, um, but it has in the binding little strips of a very early medieval manuscript which again thanks to Christopher de Hamel's expertise has been dated to around about 800 so they are in fact the earliest pieces of medieval manuscript certainly in New Zealand possibly in Australasia according to him um, so that's not my <laughs> that's not my my knowledge that's his knowledge and um, this was discovered thanks to the work of Professor Alexandra Barrett, who is an English professor at Waikato University. And she was sort of looking into fragments of, well, she was looking into medieval bindings, actually. Um, and <coughs> she, um, she followed one of Ian's lovely cataloguing records for this, um, to, to ask to see this book. And it's because in its right at the beginning of the binding. So the binding, to all intents and purposes, looks 19th century. It doesn't look... Uh, there's nothing that medieval that looks about this. The book itself is printed. Um, it's printed on paper, but inside the front cover, as you can see, there's quite a dramatic piece of medieval manuscript used as part of the binding. And Ian had identified this as a fragment, so she looked at this book um, to see what she, what she could find out about it. This one has come from Henry Shaw, so this is a Henry Shaw book. Um, but right on the next page, you can identify its medieval origin, and it's come from a monastery called Benedict Buren in Bavaria in Germany. And it's actually the same monastery, so if any of you have read this book, which, again, I heartily recommend, which is Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts by... Christopher de Hamel, in which he goes into different famous manuscript collections around the world looking at particular manuscripts. He goes to Benedict Buren, because that's where Carmina Burana was discovered, which is the famous um, songs of monks that got turned into... Um, you're going to sing it for us? <laughs> but, but this comes from the same monastery as that, which is, which is you know, interesting in, in itself. Um, but the monastery itself um, was secularised during the Napoleonic Wars. So in 1803, um, they had... Um, because, you know, a lot of Germany was... And the, they were all small city-states or 
you know, bishoprics or you know, little little states in Germany. This is before that was a unified country, and they were invaded, of course, by Napoleon during that period of his expansion into Europe. And one of Napoleon's edicts, in a sense, was to secularise governments. And in the course of that, there was a, 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 a sort of yeah, secularisation of, of, of Bavarian government. And Benedict Buren was, um, yeah, was, was sort of closed, although it still exists. So that there's obviously been a hiatus between, between that. And, but in the course of that, a lot of the books, the library got dispersed. Um, so this is Benedict Buren. So this is printed. We're printed on paper. This and it's a Bible. Um, but as you can see, um, it does have hand-drawn initials, as was common in the medieval period. So uh, you can see the, the hand-drawn initials. And what, what the uh, you know, as a printed book, what you're looking at here is a Bible. There are four volumes of this. The Bible text is in the middle. And then the commentary and explanation is all the way around the outside. And that's, again, not the commentary produced by the publisher or anything. This is an official scholarly commentary that they use and is standardised. And it, you know, it, makes, it draws analogies. It, it you know, links the Old Testament and the New Testament. It explains things. Um, and that's the nature of those. Um, this was printed in Strasbourg um, by a printer called Adolf Rusch. Um, but at some point in its history, it was rebound, uh, and in the margins here, and these are the bits that are, are these pieces here, these guards down here. This is the early manuscript. Can you see, you can see it quite clearly, and you can actually, I mean, for those who know their Latin, um, they, you can identify which parts of the Bible it's from because it is actually a Bible. Oh, yes. mm. And because of the style of handwriting, because Alexandra was in touch with Christopher de Hamel and she sent him photographs and he said, this is um, Carolingian. So, and so this, this is Carolingian minuscule. That, that's the style of handwriting, which means that it dates from roundabout the ninth, from the ninth century, possibly as early as 800, and that's those are the dates that he gave. And this handwriting style um, was developed specifically during the reign of Charlemagne or Charles the Great, which is why it's called Carolingian. Um, and it was developed by a man called Alcuin of York, <laughs> um, and it was specifically to make. Um, books, particularly the Bible, um, more legible um, because they had in inherited a lot of scripts from the Roman period. And one of the things that was quite common was for, wor for words to um, all be joined up together and have no spaces. Yep. And also to have, which makes life very difficult, especially if it's in Latin. <laughs> and Greek. <laughs> and I'm sure it is worse in Greek. <laughs> um, and then um, there doesn't have much punctuation. Um, and so this this was in fact a state-sponsored script to as as a means of educating, um, but it is you know it's inherited the the the, the rounded styles of different pre precursor scripts, but because of these various clues, you can you can date it. Um, so there are fragments, and I've put little spaces in the places where the, where there is another one. I think 
is that this is that's from the that's from the the front um, you know end paper there. But this is another fragment I think which I put in the marker. And that one's not so easy to see, but you can, if you if you look up there you can actually see mm. sort of into the into the margin, mm. but you can't mm. read it so easily. It is every mm. eight wire. Eight yeah. leaves, or is it uh, yeah, you can't always see them though. No. So <coughs> we, that's what we assume. Um, it's every eight leaves, which you can't you can't mm. actually see them. So they're, they're strengthening the binding, the stitching in the back. But that's interesting, isn't it, David? From a from a um, binding perspective, because that means they didn't change the stitching when they put the boards on, doesn't it? Uh, or they, or at least they yeah. didn't change that part of the structure. It sounds like they've guarded each each yeah, section. Yeah, they have, from what but but uh, but they can't have guard. I don't think they guarded it when they did it in the nineteenth century. No. So when they did the nineteenth century rebound rebind, yeah, they would have left those on. They would have left yeah. those on yeah. from the previous binding, and the previous binding had used them because they were scraps yeah. of outdated, you know, bits of old manuscript we don't need any longer because we've got this lovely other new printed version. Um, and and that's and that's how a number of manuscript fragments of manuscripts and some text, in fact, have survived from the medieval period, being found inside bindings because they had been cut up, and reused, recycled um, into the to the binding. And I think right at the end, I've got another. There's another one. That it has been identified as books from the Old Testament, so it is. It was a Bible. At this period when Charlemagne was um, sort of instituting this sort of educational reform, if you like, um, interestingly enough, he couldn't read or write. He tried really hard, but he couldn't, um, you know, because he was a German warrior king. That's, that's where he'd come from, you know. But he knew enough to know that this was really important if he wanted, his, if he wanted um, a modern state, if you like. So this was based on, on, on Roman, this was based on Roman writing. But then at this point, um, he also encouraged the copying of a lot of classical works, mm -hmm. not just of religious works. These were the ones that survived into the Renaissance. And when I was talking before about Lucretius, you know, and when we were doing Baskerville and I was talking about Lucretius and sort of mentioned that book called The Swerve, which is about discovering um, classical manuscripts in the medieval period, in monasteries in Germany, in fact. These manuscripts that they discovered were written in this Carolingian minuscule because most of the, a lot of them had been copied at this particular time. And the scribes who discovered them thought that that was the true ancient writing. So they copied that style of writing when they copied their books. And then when they came to print them, <laughs> they copied that again, and that's why we've got Roman type. So there's this sort of genealogy of, of, of handwriting into, and, and manuscript writing that comes down into type design, that comes down into the style of writing, style of print that we're all familiar with and we think is legible. But even at this stage, when it was being reformed, if you like, in the ninth century, um, the reform was with a view to making the words legible. And that's sort of been the theme that's followed all the way down in terms of that style. There you go. I think that's a finish. <laughs> 
don't miss your opportunity to visit our Heritage Collections exhibition, Miraculous Medieval Manuscripts, on display in the Level 2 Gallery of Tamaki Pātaka Kōrero, the Central City Library, from 16th of October to 11th of November 2023. We invite you to explore digitised versions of our rare books and manuscript collections on Kura Heritage Collections Online, or make an appointment to view in person in our Special Collections Reading Room, Tamaki Pātaka Kōrero, the Central City Library. Thank you.